Hello, welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Verley, founder and CEO. And today we're back in the podcast studio and I've got another special guest for us today here on the Project Purple Podcast. Coming in via Zoom, we do a lot via Zoom nowadays. I think that's the norm now, Joel, is, is doing these uh, events uh, via Zoom. Uh, absolutely. It's the way of life now, but I've got uh, coming to us all the way from New York State, not that far from us here in Connecticut, uh, is Joel Evans. Joel, thank you for being on the Project Purple podcast. Uh, I am glad to do it. Uh, one of my missions in life is to give back to others. Well, I'm excited to have you on here. Full disclosure with our audience. Uh, you and I connected recently. I was doing some research. You know, this is the one, and I know we, I talk about this often, Joel, on the Project Purple podcast of the, the power of social media, the power of the internet. You know, Facebook and, and Instagram were down the other day, and, and I think people were having panic attacks. Uh, but I, have harnessed the power of social media in a positive way to connect with survivors. So um, you're you're an example of that. We connected via the internet. I was able to track you down, which I, I guess I have some super sleuth uh, powers in doing so. I tracked you down and uh, here you are on the Project Purple podcast. So it's a, it's a positive. I try to look at the positives and things. I know before we started recording here, you were sharing a, a personal story about the positives of, of what's going on in your life and everything. But with that, our first segment is always given to our guests to share their background, um, what brings them here today, um, how, you, how you got to the podcast, really, I should say. Um, and as I tell my guests, it's really on you to share um, your story and your journey, I guess, is, is probably the better term. But I'll preface it by saying you can go as far back as you want, or you can stay as high level as you want. And I will be taking notes, um, and we'll go back to probably some of the things in there. So with that, Joel, the mic is yours. Um, okay. So I, I really am happy to be here. I had Whipple surgery for pancreatic cancer in February 2015. Uh, I have become active. I've written a book on my experience that's available for free download. I have a blog on surviving cancer. Uh, you know, I'm really, and I do a lot of volunteer work. And one of the things just to start out with, because it's kind of, you know, just kind of interesting and shared this one a lot, is that um, even though I was, a, I've been a professor for 47 years, 44 full time, uh, and obviously speak before audiences, do speaking gigs and everything. I'm very private when it comes to my personal life. And you couldn't get much more personal than a story about pancreatic cancer, sharing the fact that you've had it and what you've gone through. And I kind of, you know, have amazed myself. But when I, when I had my surgery and, um, you know, I was looking for what, what was going to be the purpose of my life? Why was I lucky enough to be saved? Why was, why was I one of the few? And I decided that what I was going to do is I was going to share my story because um, pancreatic cancer is, uh, you know, a real killer. And, and people need examples of those who have survived and who have kind of thrived with it. So having said that, I'll go back a little bit in, in my story. So as I said, I was, I was a professor at the Hofstra Business School uh, since 1975. Um, I was uh, full-time there. Um, 
And I was out for one semester because of the bout with pancreatic cancer. And that, that was in February of 2015 that I had the surgery. And I came back for the fall semester of 2015. And one of my goals for myself was that I was never going to miss a class during the time uh, that I was teaching before I was going to retire. And, it, and I was not going to miss any days. So I was able to do three years. I never missed a day. Uh, and that's one of the things I'm proud of. So if I go back, so I have been um, a diabetic, a type two diabetic since 1994. And my guy, Dr. Joseph Tarana, who's uh, an endocrinologist, we would do blood work every three months uh, to measure my A1C and other things. But he also was doing a whole list of other tests that I never heard of and didn't know what they were. And then this is pretty frightening. A Thursday morning at 7.30 in the morning, he calls me at home. And I don't know about you. If you get a call from your doctor at 7.30 in the morning, you kind of get rattled. So he says, you know, we got back this thing called the Billy Rubin test. Mm -hmm. And I, I, the results were a little high. And I want you, you know, I have a prescription already. I want you to go over and um, get, a, get a CAT scan today, uh, get the results, and then come over to my office. So I did the CAT scan, got the results, looked at it. Thought that it didn't sound good, but, you know, I'm not a doctor. I'm, uh, you know, a layman. So we went over to his office, and this was probably about 5.30, and he was still packed. And when uh, his uh, front office person, you know, asked me who I was, uh, she immediately ushered me in, and we spent an hour with him. I felt terrible for all the patients he had waiting. And he went over it and he told me what his suspicion was. And he said that he wanted me to, you know, have a whole bunch of other tests as fast as possible. He arranged them. He picked the best gastro guy that he knew, uh, did the sonogram. Uh, um, and um, that was within two days. He also did his research for me on who the best surgeon in the area was for this. So um, I went in and they, they immediately from, I, you know, I said sonogram, I meant endoscopy. Endoscopic endoscopy. ultrasound, yeah. And they, look, and they looked, um, looked down and they said that there's a probability that there's going to be, you know, something there. They couldn't tell from that whether it would be cancerous or not, but that I would need to see uh, a surgeon. So I saw a Dr. Gene Kappa who uh, is affiliated with um, what is now Northwell, but it was Long Island uh, LIJ Hospital. And he's also at my school, it just so happens. We have a medical school that's been around for about 10 years. And he's the, uh, the chief uh, head professor, head of the department for surgery in the medical school. So he, you know, he came really well recommended. He had done a number of these things. And we met, my wife and I met with him, and he said, uh, you know, you've been diagnosed early, so that's really lucky. I can't tell yet 
whether it's going to be cancerous or not. I am not going to be able to tell until I go in and do the surgery. And I strongly recommend that you have surgery. And I said, uh, okay, I'm ready for whatever you're telling me to do. So the surgery was sent up for um, about two weeks later. And it was only interrupted. It was only the two weeks because of the fact that there was a snowstorm. So he said to me, you know, I need to, I need to clear my schedule. I didn't know the, exactly what that meant. But evidently, the surgery itself is eight and a half hours of the one I had. It was eight and a half hours. Then you have the prep time before of, uh, you know, the anesthesia and all of that stuff. And then you have uh, the recovery. So it's, just, you know, it's a significant part of anybody's day. So he immediately cleared the decks and set me up. So um, I am, am close to my family. Uh, I have two grown daughters, both married now. And um, when I had come home from the endocrinologist, uh, before I had had uh, the endoscopy and seen the surgeon, I went over to talk to them and tell them what was a possibility. So my one daughter who was engaged immediately said, um, if you need to have surgery, and she this was February, and the surgery, uh, uh, her wedding was scheduled for October. She said to me, uh, I want to have a bedside wedding because I want you at my wedding. And my comment to her is we're having a wedding as planned in October. I'm going to be there. I'm going to walk you down the aisle. We're going to dance and I'm going to do the toast. So I don't want to hear this crap. So through that whole wind up into this stuff, I was much calmer than my family. Now, I don't know whether that's because I was in la la land thinking about this. But I tend to be an optimist and I tend to be a pragmatist. And I understood from, you know, what little I knew about pancreatic cancer, that the, the real challenge was getting you fast, mm -hmm. getting you early. So uh, we then went to the hospital the day of the surgery. The family's there. The doctor says that um, because of the fact that it's such a long surgery, he's going to do his best to um, come down about halfway through and give them a progress report. And I made what I thought was a joke, which none of them laughed at, and I can understand. <laughs> and I said, the sur doing the actual surgery is the one part of this experience that I'm going to feel a, a lot better than you because I'm going to be asleep. <laughs> so they all basically were punching me. So... Um, you know, I had the surgery. He was a man of his word. He came down halfway through. He told them that things were going well. And I, I didn't realize until we went into the room how many doctors, nurses, whatever techs were involved in this thing because of the length of it and that they and that they would rotate. So he basically he did all the important parts. So then we get to the end of the surgery and he uh, they send me to recovery and I'm out for a while. So he goes to see my family. And, and evidently my family told me afterwards that when I was put into recovery, he gave me a progress report and told me how things went. And I said, I couldn't remember that for anything. I don't even think I was close to conscious. So he told them that of all the ones that he had done, I was the luckiest one of all because of the fact that it was contained within the pancreas, he was able to clear the margin, 
and it was not in any lymph nodes, and that he thought that my prognosis for long term was going to be excellent. So they then, when they came up to the recovery room, they related that to me. So I then spent about nine or 10 days in the hospital. I'm not going to get into the gory stuff there. Uh, you know, that's uh, kind of interesting, too. Um, uh, well, the Whipple. So I have I mean... someone who I know who was high up Northwell, who got us for a regular multi-person room. We, I, we got like a suite that J-Lo had been in. <laughs> so my family loved it because they got cookies and treats every day. Yeah. You're going to ask me something? No, I was going to just say there, Joel, with the Whipple though, I mean, I, I know you don't want to, I mean, we don't want to go down that road in, in terms of the recovery, you know, for the those days. The audience listening at home, you know, the, the Whipple's pretty, and, and I love the way you explained it because for those that maybe don't know the what the whipple is it's a big surgery it's an it's no joke i mean you said well, i don't know that, how much detail you want me to give well you know you can go into whatever detail you want i mean but you know the the, the I, I my point here is I, I love the way you explained it because you know people hear surgery and they think okay but this is a no joke surgery and we've had people on the podcast before that have had whipples that talk about this you know and like you know, we've even had uh, we have we've had surgeons on that talk about the Whipple, and actually they've gotten better over time. It's still the same surgery that they've been doing. I think the last forty years since it since they oh, started it, it, right? It, it, when I had it in 2015, they had started doing Whipples about 50 years before. Yeah, so and the mortality rate was so high of getting the person off the operating correct. table that most people died then. Correct. So you know the the, the key thing with regard to the Whipple or pancreatic cancer or any form of cancer is early diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Cause I had early diagnosis. He was able to do it, but if people, you know, want to hear about it, it, it's, it is really massive. It does an ext extensive change in your body. Oh, they changed so they took the out plumbing. My spleen, yeah. They took out my gallbladder. Normally they take out one third of the stomach because mm -hmm. that's related into the pancreas. But when he was doing the surgery, he saw that there was a spot in the middle and he didn't like it. And uh, he decided that he was going to take that part off too, because he didn't want to, if it turned out to be cancerous, he didn't want to have to go back in and do another surgery after this. So I have one third of a, of my stomach. And they also, without getting too gross, they take your organs out and then they put them back in in a reorganized manner. Mm -hmm. So everything's in a different place. Yeah. So, you know, I've had uh, people that, that I followed up with that tried to, doctors that tried to decipher what had been done and they didn't understand that everything was where it was supposed to be. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I, I, I love that you explained that because, you know, again, people don't realize, I, I think general public and naturally you wouldn't, right? Like if you're not, going down this road of a Whipple, you probably wouldn't know it, but to know that you're able to do it is a, is a miracle in itself. Um, you know, and, and then, then just the reality of how complex this thing is. And, and, you know, Joel, we have asked many people in public, like where, you know, where do you think the pancreas sits? And everyone goes, oh, I don't know. You know, it sits almost on the back of your spine. Right. And so just think about if they're, in, if the incision is happening in the front, they've got to get through everything to get back there, right? 
So uh, yeah, it's it's such a, a complex and also surgery. Because they're taking out organs, yeah. they have to, you know, um, reorganize. But talk about you know people and knowledge or whatever. So before this uh, happened to me, I knew zero about pancreatic cancer. I think you tend to know from family and friends who have experienced things. So I know people who had ovarian cancer, who had lung cancer. Uh, so I knew a lot about them. Pancreatic cancer. I would probably fall into the category if I didn't know where my pancreas was. I didn't know what it did. I don't know what I could have done. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I learned a lot about it. I went online and I learned a lot about it. And there were two things I did that turned out to be terrible. So I caution people when they go on the internet, go to Johns Hopkins site, go to the Mayo Clinic. So I, I, I went to pancreatic cancer discussion boards, not Facebook groups, which are fine, but discussion boards. And because pancreatic cancer is so deadly, the, the discussion boards were so depressing because all people were doing was complaining to one another and talking about how bad it was. And so that was not smart. But this, the following is by far the dumbest thing I have ever done in my life. And that is, I figured, okay, fine, let me go to YouTube and I'll look at a, you know, a brief video of what the uh, Whipple surgery is like. Mm -hmm. And I lasted about 30 seconds. And I said, are you out of your blankety blank mind? You're having surgery next week, this surgery, and this is what you're looking at, this gory, gross-looking thing. Um, so I think we all fall into a category of, of a lack of knowledge of a large part of our anatomy and our health. And that's why, you know, my biggest uh, piece of advice to people is regularly see your doctor, do blood tests at least annually, and besides the other stuff that, that's depressing about COVID, there have been a number of studies recently that have showed that people um, have backed off a lot of their visits to their doctors. And, uh, you know, my endocrinologist told me that a lot of his diabetes patients weren't coming in. So uh, we have to do everything we can to be proactive and active about ourselves. So we had the surgery and... Um, we went home. Uh, it turned out because you have to. My wife doesn't find anything funny because one of the things that people don't realize is how tough it is for the caregiver. She has literally gone through hell. So when she drove home, it's a driving snowstorm. We live 40 miles from the hospital. So she's worrying about me lying down in the back seat. She's trying to navigate not being able to see. And we get home and I basically flop in the bed. She's got to undress me, put my pajamas on. So um, when I go for a follow-up visit with um, the surgeon, he says to me, uh, because of your situation, I don't think you need radiology, but you definitely, I strongly recommend chemotherapy. And that's another thing. I take when a doctor says I strongly recommend to meaning I must, not that I'm going to think about it, so that's another thing people do is they're so afraid of certain things that they don't listen to, you know, what the doctor says. So I said, fine. So he said, uh, you know, let me recommend somebody. He's the top of his field. So this is my only negative 
medical care experience in the whole journey that I've had. So the person that he sent me to um, felt that he, he needed to explain to me that I was still in a very dangerous spot and that um, even with the surgery and the chemo, uh, there was a strong chance that I wasn't going to make it to my daughter's uh, wedding in October. So we're talking about at that time that it's roughly six months away. So I'm an empirical guy, meaning that I know statistics. I've done research my whole life as a professor. And I said, where do you get these, you know, where do you get this from? So he's got his computer in front of him and he's got some study that's at least 25 years old and was a sample size of about 30. Okay. And he tells me this is what, you know, the results were. And I said, how many of those people had Whipple surgery? And he said, well, it was a mixed population. So I said, it's 30 people. So it's possible three people had the surgery. How many of those 30 people were like me where the surgeon found that uh, it was totally contained in the pancreas and not in my lymph nodes? And he said, I'm not sure. So I said, why are you telling me this? He said, well, I believe in full disclosure. I said, full disclosure, your job is to make me feel better. If I were to do chemo, the purpose of it is to sustain my life longer. So I had gone in there without my wife. And when I, when I got home, I said to her, I wouldn't go near this guy with anything. So I then asked my go-to guy, my endocrinologist, Joe Tarana, could he recommend somebody? So I got recommended to somebody who my wife and I fell in love with immediately who said, I can't promise you that we're going to be able to extend your life as long as we'd like but I can promise you that we're gonna do everything that we possibly can to help you live a long, healthy life. And you know that's all anybody has to say. Nobody's expecting that you're gonna tell me, oh, it's 100% that whatever. So I went through six months of chemo. Um, I wanted to be on this three drug uh, 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 regimen uh, they told me beforehand that one of them, and I, I, I just have forgotten the name, that one of them had possible, you know, bad side effects, splitting of the skin, uh, a lot of diarrhea, throwing up, et cetera. And I said, you know what? I want to give it a shot. So, so I had that once and my skin split down my fingers. So, you know, I, I stopped doing that one and I saw the doctor again and he said, you know, I know that you're upset about not being able to do the three, but, you know, the three are 98.6% effective, the two are 97.6% effective, everything's going to go fine. So I then went and I had my uh, chemo regime for six months. And there are a couple interesting things uh, involved with that. One is the oncology practice that I went to is large, and they had a lot of uh, rooms for people to sit in. So they could have a room with two people and a TV set, three people, four people, and eight people. And I picked a room with eight people. And my wife was flabbergasted. Why would you want to be in there with all these other people with cancer? It wasn't just pancreatic cancer. I was the only one there with pancreatic cancer. Why would you want to be there with other people? It's such a downer. And you know what? After the first day or two there, I knew why I wanted to be there. And that is there is no better support group 
than other people who are experiencing exactly what you are doing. So we go in every day. We'd all have all lunch with us, you know, because it's it's hours and hours. And we'd ask how you do your children, how are you doing, how are you feeling, and we got you know there was a real sense of community there. That um, if you're not going through it, you do have sympathy and some empathy, but it, it's really different. So I love being in there um, with them. So during the process, uh, there were a couple of times when my white blood cells got low and I had to go in and get shots. And the, the shots would be three days in a row. And there was a time or two when my iron got low, so they did an infusion of that. But there's actually a pretty funny story regarding um, getting the, uh, the shot for uh, the white blood cells. So over the years, uh, there was a, there's a local uh, cable channel, news channel, that would uh, had, a, had, had, a t- had a half hour TV show that was on every week. And I had appeared on it several times for five minute clips on various things in terms of consumer protection and what small businesses need to do to stay in business. So, so I got, and, and these were all done at my house, having nothing to do with COVID or me being sick. They would come out and we'd do five clips. It would take three or four hours because the person doing the interview had to change the outfit every time in between. So she calls me up, I guess, uh, about the week before we're going to do the interviews. She said, can we do four or five interviews? Can I come out? Uh, what do you think of some topics? So we talk about it. And I said, sure. And I said, sure, knowing that that was going to be the third day of my shot. So I was driving myself, and the oncologist's office was about 45 minutes with traffic. So I went there at 8 o'clock in the morning, drove the 45 minutes, had the shot, came back, and then proceeded to do five interviews on separate topics. And you'll laugh at this, because she insisted on changing her outfits I said, if you're going to change your outfits this time, uh, I'm going to change my tie. So I had a different color tie on every time. But I did them and I, you know, I listened to myself. And I said, I can't believe the clarity I had. However, I hated watching myself because that was at the point, um, you know, when I was doing the chemo and I had lost my 40 or 50 pounds and I looked really emaciated. But, uh, you know, so that turned out well. So I had my chemo. uh, And this is why you really have to be resilient. And you could tell from my tone of voice and my animation and enthusiasm that I am an upbeat person no matter what happens. So um, uh, two days, I guess, after my chemo started. uh, So we're now at the beginning of September. uh, My wife is throwing a bridal shower for my daughter. And the tradition for us is that the women go to the bridal shower and then all the guys show up, you know, at the end of it and say hi and mingle. So the guys are at my house and we're eating lunch and um, I go to sit down. And that's the last thing I remember until I woke up at the hospital. And evidently, I had not yet adjusted myself to understanding how careful I had to be with the insulin. Because when I was type two, I was always within that band of 90 to 115. It was easy peasy, as they say. 
But with, you know, the pancreatic cancer, I'm now a virtual type one diabetic. I take two different insulins uh, in total. It's six times a day. So um, what happened evidently is that I must have had more insulin than I thought. And uh, my friends called an ambulance, took me to the hospital. Uh, they told me something that, my God, you look at this and you say, this really happened? My blood sugar was 28. And it was amazing that I survived uh, to the hospital for them to, for them to uh, give me uh, glucose. 28 for those that are not familiar. You know, so 90 is a low good. 70 you could deal with, 50, you know, is horrendous, 28, you should be dead. So uh, another miracle, I think I have nine lives. So we get to the hospital, I get rehydrated and everything. And, you know, we go back home and um, I'm determined that, you know, I had missed the spring semester at Hofstra and that I'm going to be there for, you know, every day uh, from then on. So I'm in the I've been in the hospital. I'm um, two days later. I show up for my first class, and I'm there. And I never miss a class in the three years before I retired. The one compromise I had to make was that um, I had to sit down in between. I, I had to sit down. I couldn't do my normal animated thing of walking around class and chatting with people, and that I learned my lesson. So that uh, I was sitting behind the podium so they couldn't see. So I had my blood sugar meter and a bag of M&Ms so that if I got low, the fastest thing that was going to help me was going to be chocolate. So then I get, you know, to, to like two days later and I say to my wife, my back is really hurting me. So I, we end up going to somebody called a... Uh, uh, dealing with radiology and uh he 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 determines that when i fell that i did uh, i fractured between the uh two of my vertebrae in the lower back and he was recommending that i get uh cement put in the back so i said okay so then the next step in this is he can't get approval from my insurance company and i have a a, a platinum plan because i'm I'm working at Hostra, I'm on an indemnity plan, it's not HMO, but they're refusing. And the best part is that he is a specialist in his field. <clears throat> he's trained and practiced his whole life. He's talking to a general practitioner that doesn't know Dibble. So he did something, this is why I'm not identifying him, even though I love him, is that um, he had, he had me show up. This was a, uh, an outpatient thing. Had me show up, had me put uh, on a table, uh, gowned up and everything, and had me outside the room where he, was he would do these procedures. And he comes out uh, 10 minutes before my procedure and said, I still haven't gotten approval, but wait here, I'm going to get it. <laughs> so he tells the insurance company that, this is a man that just had surgery for pancreatic cancer, and I'm worried that there could be a tumor in there, and you can't tell me that I can't do it at that point. Obviously, they're feeling their liability is through the ceiling, so they said yes. And he basically told me afterwards that he was just, you know, he, he looked at that as the last straw. 
So this is where a doctor really has to be your advocate because these insurance companies are mind boggling. So I had the, the cement put in. I got a little funny story for that. I don't know how I'm doing in terms of uh, my time. Am I okay? We're good. We're good, Joe. Okay. I got a, a funny story for this. Thing. So uh, I'm awake for this. I'm lying on my stomach and they give me a local anesthetic in my lower back. And the doctor says to me, and he holds up the world's smallest hammer. <laughs> and he says, to me, I'm going to use this hammer to very, very carefully put a hole in uh, in between, you know, where the, where the fracture is. But I have to be able to space a little bit so I could put in the balloon for the cement. So I said, okay. So then I'm lying there and my back is totally numb and I'm listening to, and I get hysterical laughing. And he says to me, why are you laughing? I said, because I can't feel it, but you're hitting a hammer in my back. So then he said, well, then you really like this because the fracture was a little larger than I thought. So I had to do a hole in the other side too, to, oh. to, you know, so that the cement is a little more. So two days later, I'm back at Hofstra because I'm not missing any days. And, uh, you know, so, so I then get or rather um, nicely, I make it from September to my daughter's wedding, uh, October 24th, 2015. And as I promised her, I walked down the aisle, I did a toast, and we did a dance. When I walked in with my wife, we had a good-sized ceremony. When I walked in with my wife, everybody, everybody in the room started crying, which is the last thing I wanted, because this was supposed to be about my daughter. When we were doing the father-daughter dance, she says to me, if you start crying, I'm going to start crying. And I said to her, if you start crying, I'm going to start crying. So our recollections are different because she said I started first. I say she started first, but we both started crying, as then did almost everybody there. So it was a real amazing event. I hung in there till two o'clock in the morning. Mm. We then had a brunch for out-of-towners at nine o'clock on Sunday morning. Uh, I was back at Hofstra on Monday. <laughs> I don't know how. Uh, I guess I was on a real high. So, you know, my wife and I, she's had a tough time because she's watched me when I've had really bad diarrhea, when I'm emaciated, when I'm thrown up a lot. And she could see me afterwards and she knows what I'm in. So, you know, she really, really, really feels that. But we've been able to do a lot of normal stuff. And granted, this is before COVID. Uh, but we we were able to do a lot of traveling. You know, one of our highlight events was that we went on a two-week cruise that was a Baltic cruise that uh, started out of Amsterdam and then went down to St. Petersburg, Russia, and came back. Uh, so that, you know, so things were good. But then, because I haven't aggravated my wife enough, we went on a cruise of the British Isles in, um, I, I believe it's fall of 2017. Uh, it could be 17 or 18, and I don't remember that well. But I think it's fall 2017. So this was post all treatments. Yeah, well, post all back, treatments and post the, post the trip of post the trip of the Baltic. Yeah. This was going to be at the British Isles. That's why I'm thinking it's probably 2018, 
all of 2018. So we again start out of Amsterdam and we go, uh, uh, we're in Bruges, Belgium, and then we go to the Blarney Stone. And then the next stop is Waterford, Ireland. Um, and uh, the night before we're, we're, we're there, I start sweating and shivering like crazy. My wife says to me, you got to see the doctor. I said, no, I'll be fine in a couple of minutes. She says, you are seeing the doctor. She said, I've already called and they're sending a wheelchair up. So I get down to the doctor. He looks at me and he takes my temperature, uh, listens to my heart and says, you are going to the hospital. So um, they get an ambulance for us. They take us to the hospital in Waterford, which is an interesting and pleasant experience because that is socialized medicine. And they were all so much nicer and I felt so much better treated than I am here where we pay 10 times as much. So they took me to the hospital. I'm in the emergency room. They get, you know, the guy who uh, is in charge of uh, internal medicine, internal medicine. And they diagnosed me as having sepsis and double pneumonia, which meant both lungs were a mess. And they put me into ICU. It turned out to start out, I was hallucinating. So I was in ICU for six days. I was in a regular room for four days and the doctor wouldn't let us come home for another week. So what, while I was not having a great time, I felt awful for my wife, the caregiver. So she's got to make all the arrangements. She got to get the ambulance. She's got to bo get booked into a hotel. She's got to take care of all the insurance stuff uh, relating to uh, the hospital and the doctors. And we had actually had had uh, travel insurance. And then she's got to be by herself for the 10 days I'm in the hospital in a hotel. And granted, it was a nice hotel in Ireland by herself with no support network except for a couple of long distance phone calls. And she, as a result of this, I, we both think that she ended up with PTSD, that she actually has post-traumatic stress syndrome. So when I've had anything happen since then, I've had knee replacement surgery, whatever, she, she goes nuts that something's going to happen to me. So she worries more about me than I worry about me. And it, it, it's sad to see, you know, she has done so much. So I tried to give her public recognition. I've written uh, posts at my blog. I've gone on to Medium, Huffington Post, all over, you know, praising her. But I think if... if if those of you that are out there or friends or family of somebody who's got a serious disease, please once in a while ask the caregiver, how are you doing? You know, what's it like for you? Because it, you know, and now, unfortunately, I have a broken wrist. Uh, the good side is that I, after I had my knee surgery, I've been able to walk three miles every other day at a pretty brig, brisk, brisk <laughs> pace. And for somebody who is now 73, who's gone through all this stuff, I think that's pretty good. So I, uh, you know, I did this and now I'm dependent on her again, because even though I am left handed, uh, there's only so many things you could do with one hand. 
So uh, she's got to help me with everything again and is a nervous wreck over me, even though in the scheme of things, this is absolutely nothing. So my motto is to live well every day, live and love life. Uh, I, I firmly believe uh, that um, being down or depressed or having bad thoughts only makes us feel worse. So if we're already feeling badly, let's think about something positive because we don't need to set ourselves off. So as you, you know, again, as you can see, so I had this stupid thing on and you know, that it's not slowing me down. I am with, you know, able to do my blogs, do an interview like this. And uh, another thing that's happened is that I always was a workaholic. There was a long period of time where I worked a hundred hours a week. And while I had slowed down in, in you know, later years, I was still really a workaholic. And the family went on a lot of vacations, whatever, but I really didn't have much of a social life other than my wife and I going out on Saturday nights. But this experience has transformed the way that I view the rest of my time on earth. And that is that if I was given this blessing, that here I am, that it is my debt to give back to others. So that's why I have a cancer blog. I have a book about my experience. Um, I do interviews. Um, I do volunteer with work with the Lust Garden Foundation, which is one of the largest pancreatic cancer research foundations. Another thing that I ended up uh, volunteering with, and it's been harder with uh, COVID, is United Cerebral Palsy. Um, so United Cerebral Palsy uh, used to be United Cerebral Palsy. That's the name of it. And it dealt exclusively with people with UCP. But now it deals with people with traumatic brain injuries. Uh, it deals with people on ventilators, uh, with all types of things. So what I was doing is I was going to one of their, their, their facility where they where they had a lot of programs. And I was interacting in three different sessions with 30 to 40 of them and, um, you know, going, going there. And I loved them and they loved me and they kept thanking me for being there and doing this for them. And I said, you don't understand, you're helping me. This is what my life is here for. It's not to sit home and watch TV or whatever. It's to try to give back to people, to try to, to help them, to make their life a little better. So when I had my knee surgery, which is um, right before COVID, January of 2020, there, there must have been 30 or 40 of them that sent me a card wishing me well, signed by 30 or 40 of them. And that's one of my most prized possessions is, is that. So... You know, you don't have to contribute money, although I do that too. It's, 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 it's the actions that we do. It's the behavior. And I feel, you know, I, I, you know, I was a professor a long time. I've helped thousands of students with resumes and all types of things. I've written textbooks that have been, you know, successful around the world. My most important, my most important accomplishments are now. I'm far more proud of the book I wrote on pancreatic cancer which has a modest circulation compared to, to textbooks that I had that were out long enough to make it to a 13th edition and a 12th edition 
and were translated into Chinese and Russian. I am, you know, much um, happier and more proud of that book. It's pretty special, Joel. Uh, I've got a bunch of questions here as I've been taking notes. And my first question, I want to go all the way back. Uh, you said you became a type 2 diabetic in 1995. Yes. And things have evolved here in the last five years since, you know, your Whipple, well, it's, it's actually almost seven years. Almost here. seven. Almost seven. So genetics is a big piece. So I have a question on that. But but the one other piece that's happened here in the last couple years has been diabetes and, and really late onset diabetes. So, I mean, there's a couple of questions here. I mean, one. No, it was not in my family. So g genetics, it wasn't in your family. But uh, Dr. Dr. Carano, your endocrinologist. T, T, Toronto. Toronto. Oh, T, T. Dr. Toronto, he gets the Nobel Prize for having the gumption to say, all right, we got to look at this thing a little bit further. It's just so fascinating to me. Well, not just look at that thing. The fact that he was even testing for yeah. it as an endocrinologist, because I was there for diabetes. And I guess I need to, to, to lead up to from 1995 to 2015 when I had the surgery. So like a lot of diabetics, type 2 diabetics, I started out with one medication. Then I went to two oral medications. And then I went to an oral medication plus a moderate amount of insulin. And all of that together was able to keep me within a very acceptable range. But clearly what happens with diabetics is that we need to take better care of ourselves and the regimen has to change. Yeah. So for people who are reluctant to go to their doctor, very I still go to my endocrinologist every three months. As a matter of fact, I'm getting my, my quarterly blood work done tomorrow to see him next week. So, you know, there is an evolution. Um, we don't just stay stagnant. And, um, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, what, so what caused it? Um, I don't think I had a very healthy diet. My weight um, yo-yoed. The diabetes uh, a, we're talking about. 20, yeah. There'd be a 20-year period where I jog five or six miles every day, and I was the healthiest I ever was in my life. And then there'd be times when I, you know, this, this is going to sound so bad, but I'm being honest. I'm being as honest as I could be. So um, the day before or two days before, well, the week before I was diagnosed with diabetes by my family doctor, um, my wife was, was in Manhattan at a conference. So she was there overnight. So I had my daughter, who was then 13, with me. So we went out for dinner and I said, you want to stop at Dunkin' Donuts too? So she said, well, if you want to. So, you know, they have a special one, the Baker's Dozen. She had one, I had the other 12. And in one sitting. And because I was working 100 hours a week, uh, peanut M&Ms were my adrenaline flow. So needless to say, those things were going to kill me by themselves. So, uh, and hindsight's always twenty twenty, Joel. Though, of course, you know, I mean, looking but, but back, that, but part, but part of this show is about advising others to correct. not do what I've done. Correct, correct. 
Yeah, and diet as we evolve this cancer paragraph, uh, you know, th this cancer evolution or how cancers start, uh, the paradigm of, of cancer, you know, diet, I think is going to become a bigger and bigger piece as we move forward. Um, and as we learn more, and, and that's something that, you know, I think there's everything is in moderation, like to your point, you could have one donut, not all 12, right? Um, uh, so yeah, that that's such an important piece. My next question, and you just said something, you know, like you're going for blood work yesterday. And I know a couple of times you mentioned some things just in talking about your journey and your experience. Being now seven years out, what is it like, you know, you're going in for testing. Do you have anxiety? Uh, do, do you have, uh, I know you said your wife has the PTSD because she was the caregiver and, you know, you were in Ireland really set her, sent her over the top. Yeah. And you, you, you said, you know, you were, you were kind of, you know, for your Whipple, you were asleep. So you had the easiest piece of that. Um, but you know, your, your loved for that ones, time period. yeah, for that time period. But, uh, you know, do you have anxiety about testing now? Like, how does that kind of factor in? All right, I mean so I, I have the testing every three months with my endocrinologist. I have a urologist that I get tested, you know, twice a year. I have a gastro guy that I see him and have uh, uh, colonoscopies uh, on a regular basis, which I didn't use to when I was younger. So the one that gets me nervous is when I, when I a after the... After the surgery, I had CAT scans every three months, four, four times a year. And obviously, I was extremely nervous off the charts having that because at that point, we didn't know, you know what, what was really going to happen. So I had, and uh, early on, when I first saw the, uh, the, the doctor would be my oncologist, he said, I strongly suggest that you get a port put in your shoulder so that all of the medication that you have goes through that port and we don't have to hunt uh, in your arm every time that you come in. That was a tremendous piece of advice and advice for other people too. Don't have it turned out having a port versus doing it in your arm. Because I saw people that would come in that, that two or three times a week, they didn't do a port, they'd have to fight for a vein. You know, their veins are all shrunken, they were in pain. And they would have to go through this thing every time. In my case, they, they'd open up the port. They put everything through that. They'd have one thing that would go into the port and then everything would fold into it. And it was great. So I, I had that. And then after about um, two and a half years, they said, you only need to come in every six months. Then. So I said, okay, that's progress. And I said, what about the port? So they said, uh, just in case keep that in for another year. So I kept it in for another year and then, and then I had it taken in because um, I, I didn't want that security blanket. Uh, so um, I do have some level of anxiety before I have the CAT scan. And just coincidentally, that's the end of this month, beginning of November that I have my next one. So I, I do have some anxiety because there's one, you know, very tiny part of me that says, maybe this thing is, this whole thing is like a roulette wheel. And one of these times that they spin it, I'm going to end up on the worst number and it's going to turn out that something's there. 
And, you know, what the doctor consistently says every single time is that every time you have a clean CAT scan, that means the odds are phenomenal that you're going to live a long time after this. You know, now this is going to be, if you count the times I had four in a year, probably 15, 20 CAT scans, they've all been negative. So, you know, but there's still, there's still the period um, between when I have to go to have my blood done and then the following week when I have the Results. Uh, CAT scan itself, there's still anxiety. So However, you- I have been able to eliminate the anxiety of not knowing the results till I get to the office, which used to drive me up a tree because they post them at their website. So I already know going in what whether or not I'm going to be happy. So is and there's- if ever there's one day when I'm not happy, I guess I'll have to have my, my wife, the PTSD driver, uh, drive me. Do, do you do th- do you have a certain routine now that kind of gets you through that time frame, Joel? That you could share that you know has worked for you. Not to say that it'll work for everyone, but is there something you know that you do subconsciously or maybe consciously to kind of get through that time? Well, that's why I said this about this part of me because I think I am an extremely rational, systematic person, mm-hmm. and I am empirical, which means evidence based. So, you know, this whole experience for me puts everything in perspective that, you know, everything's going to be okay. And I'm also a believer that love life, live life every day, live as well as you can, as long as you can, so that I try for the least amount of time possible to think about this. So one of the things I've learned about myself that, that I believe would help others too, is that we oftentimes have a tendency to think in long terms. It's like, oh my God, I may only have six months or I may only have a year or I may only have whatever. And I like to divide it up into smaller pieces. So what can I do today that is going to make me feel good today? Because that's one of my rules for myself is that I don't want to do anything unless I'm happy with it. I don't want to do anything that I feel pressure to or that I have to do it. And then I would set things for the week. So, for example, I have two blogs, one that's in the business area, one that's on cancer. The business blog, I post on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. And the cancer blog, I post on Tuesday, Thursday. So I've got a routine. I know what I'm doing with that. I am teaching one graduate class a year, uh, and that's this, this fall. And it's on Thursday afternoons. And I'm, I'm st- even though the university is fully open, I'm still doing it uh, remotely by Zoom. So I have that to look forward to. I have papers to grade. I have things to prep. So I give myself goals that are, you know, what do I need for, you know, the week ahead? And then what do I need for the month ahead? And if I have something longer term, uh, so, um, you know, the, the worst of COVID for us, and this is nothing compared to the people who have had to really suffer with it, is that my wife and I were married 50 years in December and we had a whole elaborate trip planned to go uh, to Europe and obviously that got canceled. And then this summer, I had a relative's son who was getting married at um, the end of July in San Francisco. So I said to my wife, how about if we do the trip? And this was probably, we're talking around February or March of this year. How about if we do the trip to the wedding stay in San Francisco for a few days, 
and then do the Hawaii part of our trip because we love Hawaii. We've been there a few times. So we booked that. I'm all set. You know, everything is done. The hotel. And then we get to around May. And this Delta nonsense is starting to go crazy. And And we both said we can't possibly do this. So I ended up, you know, having to cancel the whole thing. Uh, we've got two uh, life events that we were going to go to in Florida that are in November. We've decided not to do those. And our next planned trip is April to Bermuda, meeting these really good friends of ours who are from Great Britain and meeting them so that we call it midway, although their flight is very long and ours is very short. So if, if we can't make that trip, oh my God. But we have gone out, we've gone, you know, we've gone, we, we went for a long time only outside dining. Um, you know, we've now gone a couple of times inside as long as uh, they insist that people are masked while they're not eating, that the tables are set far apart. So, you know, we're trying to be as normal uh, as we can be. And until I did this thing with my wrist, I, I was constantly challenging myself. Oh, yeah. And I would walk every other day. So I'm walking about four days a week. So I've got really definite upbeat challenges for me every single day. And when I do one of them, I do a, you know, a, a blog post. So the one I did yesterday, uh, I'm sorry, on Tuesday was about, the, you know, this new advance in, in, in pancreatic cancer research that looked pretty, you know, pretty good. So I felt great after that. When I walk, there's an adrenaline flow that goes. When I do something like this, you know, I'm, you know, I'm pumped up. So I think we need to do things that we like to do and sh- and set shorter term and not longer term goals. I'm 73. You know, I can read actuarial tables. Uh, you know, I'll give you a funny story with this too. So I, um, every year I go over, uh, you know, my retirement planning with my uh, financial planner and we update the plan. So this year he says to me, uh, and we and I take out a good amount from my retirement because I've saved a huge amount. So he says to me, you know, you're really going to have to cut back a little bit because um, you're not going to live as long as the, the plan projects out. You're going to run into a deficit. So I said to him, what time frame are you using for my life plan? And he said, well, the standard 95. And I said at the time, this was, uh, yeah, I was 72. I said at the time, I'm a 72-year-old pancreatic cancer survivor. What possible odds are there? You know, and I'm not saying this in a negative way. I'm saying let's be serious. I have a good, I have a good style of life now. And this is what I do. So I I got him to project out, I think, to 89. And I'm fine. If I if I live to 89. So, it, you know, so sometimes we have to laugh at ourselves and we have to think about, you know, priorities. So, um, you know, we're not extravagant, but we can both do things now when we're, you know, when we're going to travel, when we get to that Bermuda trip, we're then going to go to Hawaii after that. We're then going to go to Europe after that. Once it's healthy, you know, what is the point of, of saving all of that for later on? I've 
I've accounted for my kids. We've given them a lot of stuff over the years. So um, you, you have to feel content with yourself. That's one of the things too, is that, you know, I, I, there may have been a couple of lifestyle things that I did that, that caused this, but I still, I still think that fundamentally, it's just the luck of the draw. I know a lot of people, I, I, one of my best friends had lung cancer as a non-smoker. You know, it's just sometimes stuff happens and, you know, you, you have to accept it. So I'm totally at peace with myself. When I was younger, I was racing against myself. I had such high goals. I reached every single one of them by the time I was 32, including becoming a distinguished professor at 40. I'm sorry, by 40. I was a distinguished professor by 40. So for, at that point, I said, okay, what am I doing next? Because I reached my goals. So you, you have to redefine goals away from professional to family and friends and experiences. Um, so I've gotten into a lot, a lot of um, some phenomenal uh, streaming uh, miniseries stuff. It's just, just great. And, you know, that's a way to productively spend time, too, I think, is you're thinking if you're going to a good miniseries. But I love giving back to people. Joel, what did you teach at Hofstra? I think I, ha I have a I have a okay, idea so here. Okay, so I um, I was in the marketing and international business department. So I taught everything from marketing 101, which is the beginning, to our capstone marketing course uh, on the graduate level. And I also, for I don't know, over 20 years, I taught in the executive MBA, and I taught the capstone course for that. So I like the kid that is from womb to tomb that my teaching covered. So you got a 19-year-old that knows nothing about life, not alone business or marketing or whatever, to dealing with executives in an executive program who have phenomenal experience and are never afraid to contradict you or to question something. So... I loved it because you had to be on top of your game, Amen. you know, and I got great ratings. I had great relationships. I'm still friendly with some of them. I actually pl played tennis with one of them for about 15 years. Wow. But, uh, you know, as a teacher, it's, it's keeping contacts with, with your students. Uh, that's something else that energizes. That's something else that because of COVID, uh, when I said I wanted to teach after I retired, I was talking about in person. Yeah. But, you know, given Given the fact that I'm diabetic, given the fact that, you know, I still have a, a weak immune system, even having had the booster shot, I am not physically going to campus. So now the question is, do I want to do this again next year and, and hope that it's in person? Yeah. And I don't know, because I also believe that we have to know um, when it's time to fold them, know when to hold them, know when to fold them. And you know, as of uh, February uh, 2022, it'll be 47 full years. And, you know, it's time for other people. That's a long time. It is. I got two questions. I've changed a lot. I, when I, last fall, fall of 20, I had to learn how to do Zoom and how to, how to do videos and, and animated PowerPoints. So that was a real pain in the neck. That took as much time as I spent preparing for the last 20 years. But it was also invigorating learning new stuff. Well, 
you stay pretty busy. So I, I would say you, you earn the time that you have to do what you want, uh, which, you know, if teaching's not in the plans, then I, I think you got plenty on your docket there that you could fill your days up with and, and find a lot of joy and, and passion for what you're currently doing. So I, I, would, I would keep doing that. I've got two questions left here for you. And I, I always kind of preface these two and say, uh, these are somewhat loaded. Um, there's no right or wrong to either of these questions and, and just really kind of your perspective on your journey. If you journey. think I'm going to feel intimidated by any question, you're going to ask me. <laughs> but my first question, um, someone who's listening to this podcast, listening to your journey, um, what's the what's the best advice you could give that person if they've just left their doctor's office and, and just have been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer? Go to a Facebook page that's called Pancreatic Cancer, just Pancreatic Cancer. And that is a website where there are people that have just found out that they're diagnosed or they're going through a lot of stuff, so they're upset. And then there are many of us, unlike other places, where we're giving our journey, our story. So that there's a lot of upbeat stuff. I was on one, I was on uh, Facebook, uh, that, that site the other day. And I, you know, I clicked on one guy who had made a comment and I read his story. And I said, let's reach out to each other because he has an interesting story too. And he's still doing, you know, marathons after, after having had it and had, and having had a recurrence of it. So I, I you know, looking for getting positive reinforcement. So what, what happens is that every post is going to get like a hundred likes, sometimes with teary faces. And every post is going to get anywhere from 10 to a hundred comments back. And the comments are positive in terms of I've gone through this. I've had a loved one. You know, if you're thinking about this medication, this is my experience. So I think that it, you've got to stay away from the internet per se, okay? Because there's a lot of stuff that's real downer, that it's not legitimate information. If you really must go online, go to Johns Hopkins, you know, someplace like that, or the, or the Mayo Clinic, uh, and, and read what they say. But keep in mind that, okay, so there are statistics, and then there are statistics. So I know that for a fact, the likelihood is that uh, the majority of, of people who are diagnosed with pancreatic cancer are not going to survive very long. But don't go off the deep end because there are a couple of things there. One is not going to survive very long. Again, if you read that pancreatic cancer uh, Facebook page, there are people that are there that they gave them three months or six months and they were in year 10 out. Okay. And uh, the, you know, the other thing is, Really listen to your doctor. There are so many more things out there now than there were before. So there are ways of doing chemo and radiation if you have progressed initially beyond being able to do a whipple surgery, because they are very reluctant to saying no if it has spread to uh, your lymph nodes. But there are but but between the chemo and the radiation, they can they can really shrink down. Uh, the tumors. So there are things that can be done. And there's research being done all the time that is 
you know, very exciting research. I get into that often on my cancer blog. So I think if you, you know, if you've just been diagnosed, it's devastating. It's devastating for you. It's going to be devastating for your family. Um, and so that you've got a double whammy. I'm not meaning to scare you. I'm just trying to give my perspective. You've got a double whammy. You've got yourself who's going through this psychologically and physically, and you've got your family who's scared to death just because they've heard the two words together, pancreatic cancer. So, so we have to be somebody who supports them as well as ourselves, And that's not necessarily uh, an easy thing to do. But we have to look at it as live life every day. You know, I'm not gone. They're not necessarily right. You know, the, the average male uh, of, of, of my age has, an, according to the actual actuarial tables, has another 10 to 12 years on average. So that doesn't mean there aren't people that die tomorrow, as well as people who live to be over 100. So what we've got to strive to do is to be us and to, you know, to be optimistic. But you have to listen to your doctor and you have to calm yourself down. There's another thing I think I forgot to mention when I was talking about my journey, which I found very helpful. So um, after the surgery and while I was having chemo, uh, my older daughter, who was really into uh, yoga and meditation, I knew that on Thursday night she was going to a half hour meditation session. And while I'm not into a lot of the psychological babble, I said to myself, maybe I could get something out of this. So I went with her. She bought me a mat. She bought me a pillow. She bought me something for my legs. And I learned a whole bunch of, of relaxation techniques. I learned more about breathing. I learned more about closing my eyes and trying to see colors and, and just trying to put my head totally away from everything else. So what I would advise anybody is there, if you listen to music, there is a lot of meditation music out there, okay? It is easy to do deep breathing and control breathing exercises without doing anything else that really gets us, you know, it's like, you know, if, if somebody gets excited and they say, take a deep breath. So this is, you know, more like taking 10 deep breaths, but it's the same effect that relaxes us. So you've got to get your head in, you know, in the right direction. But don't say no to what the doctor recommends. Powerful. Last question. And this is a little bit more loaded than the previous one. Your experience, how do you define pancreatic cancer? What's that definition for you? <laughs> uh, so pancreatic cancer is something that... Um, could be spread in ways that people don't know, could go undiagnosed in people for years, which is when they have problems, because I was lucky uh, that my endocrinologist caught it, uh, you know, very early. But I, um, I look at pancreatic cancer as a form of cancer that... Um, is devastating. If you look at the statistics in terms of the number of people each year who get pancreatic cancer, 
it's moderate. You know, it's, it's, it's not in the top five. If you look at the number of people who die from pancreatic cancer, um, it's within the top five. It's like, it's like number two, maybe. So, um, so when I, you know, define pancreatic cancer, I, I, I look at it as something that happens to us like any other cancer. Hold on one second. Uh, at, at, like any other cancer, but it, it's far more deadly. And um, it doesn't happen because we're a bad person. No cancer happens because we're a bad person. It just happens to us because uh, we are unlucky. And it, it's something that sits there towards the back of your, your body. And it's this small elongated piece that if you look at it, looks so innocuous. And you know, its function in terms of you know, regulating our sugar doesn't sound nearly as important as other things. But it is, it is, it can be absolutely devastating. And while I still have a number of side effects that I deal with. And, you know, um, the other thing, you know, I know I'm not defining it per se, but we have to not be scared of it. That's part of my biggest advice is you have to go to the doctor regularly and have them do, you know, a, a series of, you know, blood work on you. Even if it's not this Billy Rubin for pancreatic cancer. But once you start see, feeling something and, you know, if you're lucky enough to experience the symptom, the, the limited symptoms that there are, and I wasn't, is that um, your, your skin kind of get, gets to be a, a yellow, kind of a yellow color. And it's not something that's obvious that that's a, um, a, a danger point and our eyes could start to show that too. And it's not something that we, you know, we think about, you know, we look at ourselves. I don't think we look that closely. I don't think that we really study our arms or our legs mm -hmm. um, all the time. So um, I, I, and I also define pancreatic cancer as something that we still know so little about. Um, and I, uh, Without that's a doubt. why I thank the Lust Garden Foundation, which has a number of research projects going on with um, wonderful doctors at, at top places. And they have a, an anonymous, I know who it is, an anonymous donor who funds all expenses. So 100% of every donation goes directly to research. So he funds the people that work there. He funds mm -hmm. the rent. Um, great guy. Uh, and he had lost somebody to pancreatic cancer. And he felt the need to give back. So I, I, I don't think I answered your question. No, you, you hit it. It's your answer, Joel. Um, so I appreciate it. And my last thing here, someone listening to this, and I know you mentioned, you know, you've got your book, um, you do your blog. If someone listening to this wants to connect with you, read your book, get your book, connect with you, where's the best place for them to do that? Here's the easiest place. Uh, one of my emails is Joel, J-O-E-L, prof, short for professor. One word, joelprof at hotmail.com. 
And I promise if somebody writes to me, I will write back. I will give you a PDF file of my book. I will alert you over to my blog, which I believe has a lot of really good stuff on it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Joe, thank and if you. And if you want to talk, let me know. And we could Zoom or we could phone call or we could text, whatever. I'm more than willing. That's my life's mission. I love it. Joel, thank you for allowing us to share your journey. Um, I wrote down a lot here. And something that you said a couple of times is live well every day and love life. And I think this is a testament to not only your journey, but you've said your wife many times. Uh, we want to mention her. Um, you know, I knowing- call her my Lummel. And yeah. Lummel is L-O-M-L. That's the love of my life. And I, I know it. guys don't normally do that, but I put that on everything. So I'm writing those blog posts. It's to the Lummel. I love it. I love it. Um, thank you for being a guest and for allowing us to share in your journey and for being so open and honest and hopefully inspiring many out there that are either going through this or potentially may go through this in the future. Thanks for being a guest, Joel. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple podcast. If you like what you hear today, please follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to share this podcast. And until next time, please be safe. Thanks for listening. Yeah.